Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 350 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm your co-host and also CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find wonderful writing courses and a fabulously supportive writing community. I'm here with my partner in crime, my co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the fabulous book, The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery. How are you, Al? Uh, well, obviously, I'm a criminal mastermind because well, yes. that's what I'm doing right now, being mm-hmm. your partner in crime. Um, I look, you know what? I'm actually pretty good. Uh, just, you know, even though it's school holidays, I am actually pretty good. And the reason for that is I have finished the first draft of Maven and Reeve 2, which Yay! still doesn't doesn't actually still have a title just yet, but we're getting there. Um, yes, and anyone who's been following the hashtag writer book with Al, uh, progress will, will be very, you know, I'm sure they were also doing cartwheels with me. So um, I'm really hoping that everyone who uh, participated in that has added a huge number of words to their word count because it feels like it's taken me, this book feels like it's taken me a really long time. Um, I don't I don't think it actually has, like as far as if, if I was to go back, I can't even remember what day I started, um, but if I was to go back to that first hashtag, it's probably been maybe three months or so, maybe a little bit more, but right. um, it's just been, it's been such a, because um, normally, you know, the first draft will take me kind of six to eight weeks, um, but this one has just felt very bitsy um, and there's a couple right. of reasons for it. I think one, of course, is obviously that I had a book come out in the middle yep. of it all, uh, which, of course... That small um, thing. Ta- well, there is that, yes. Mm. Um, it takes, uh, and I've tried to explain this phenomenon to people who haven't experienced it before, but um, there's just such a huge amount of your mind, even if you're not actively, you know, doing Zooms or doing launches or going mm. to doing whatever it is, you you know, if you're, if you're not actively doing that, there's something about the launch process which just takes a huge amount of your uh, brain space, you know, capacity away. Um, mm. So I generally try not to write in those, you know, at that time anyway. So there was a few weeks there where I didn't really do much at all. But this one has just been sort of such bits and starts. It really has been you know, 400 words, 200 words, no words, and then 3,000 words. Um, so there's that. But I also think it's partly because, and this is this is going to sound really weird, I think it's partly because I had a synopsis, oh. which I know is counterintuitive to everything that plotters will tell you. Mm. Um, but I think that my issue with finishing this book was I, I knew how it ended. And oh. I think that that has been a problem for me in the past but in actual fact, I realised a little while ago that I didn't know how it ended. I realised as I was writing the book that in actual fact the ending that I thought I had was not the ending that was the actual ending. Um, and and it, as soon as I realised that, uh, I just sailed down to the end. It's a mm. it's a fascinating phenomenon and, mm. um, and I think it's something that, um, uh, you know, like it, 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 it is something that really I think sets you – is the divide between plotters and and pantsers is that thing of if you if I know the end of the book I have much less impetus to get to the end yes. of, the, of the draft whereas if I don't it's like I'm reading the book for the first time like a you know a reader mm-hmm. and so it, it's unfolding for me and I am keen to show up every day to see what's going to happen um, and I think I need that you know it's just part of my writing process and I think I really need that um, to kind of keep that motivation and keep that um, that impetus flowing. So, yeah, it was it was funny because the, I was, you know, again in the shower, which is this, I got the idea yes. for this book in the shower and this breakthrough that I had came in the shower and mm. it was that I was in the shower and I suddenly thought, wait a minute, no, that's not what happens. And as soon as mm. that happened for me, I was eager again. And I think I have to be eager or the, the momentum of the story goes. So that's a very long way of saying I got there. Yes. I'm, I've gone off piste. It hasn't quite worked out as I thought it was going to work out and I'm all right with that. So I just have to hope my publishers are right with that. I think they'll be fine because as long as I hand in a draft that makes sense and has a meaning, I think they'll be all over it. But, yeah, it was pretty funny. But is this first draft? Is this first draft? This is first draft, yeah, yeah, first draft. This is just me working out the story. Um, So I've finished the draft and now I'm going to have a little break while the – 
um, or the boys are on holidays, uh, mm. maybe a week only though, because my deadline is mid-October. Um, and mm. then I'm going to go back and, and, you know, that intensive massage that we discussed a few episodes ago that we will never yes. mention again. <laughs> I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to do that. But it's a, it's, it feels like that's going to be a lot easier for me now that I have made this one significant change that I needed to make. So I'm pretty, yeah, right. I'm pretty feeling pretty good actually. Yeah, it must feel, it must be such a relief when you finally oh, got it out. Like, yeah, it's like having, um, you know, it's because you do have that constant overhang of homework, you know, when mm, you're working yes. on, on something. I and then know. just to know that you've got to the end, that somehow it's all come together. And, you know, it's, I, I mean, I've got some tidying up to do, obviously. You make a big change like I've made. You've got to make some changes, you know, up front, et cetera. Um, but I, I know what they need to be. I've got notes, mm. you know, and I'm just feeling, I'm feeling so much better about the story. I think that's, yes. the, that's the key to it. I'm feeling so much better about the story. So I think that, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm okay. I'm good. And I'm, I we're think gonna be, we're going to be fine. It's interesting how you, you describe it as that constant overhang of homework because, uh, and you will have experienced this because you have in the past been a journalist where you write much shorter things, yes. you know, a thousand words, sometimes even yes. 500 words or 1500 yes. words or whatever. And you can write them, send it off and you get that instant gratification mm. and you get that dopamine hit a lot more frequently. Yes, so, you do. Do you kind of cra- because and do you f- crave that? Do you kind of well or miss that because you, it's it is such a great feeling when you file the story, you send it to the editor, and you just go, "That's done," and I've achieved something today, and I'm going to yeah. get paid for it. <laughs> oh, I do. Well, I yeah, there is that. I do miss that sort of like weekly pay thing. It's kind of a fun thing to have, particularly with mm. your with freelance articles and things. But mm. I think you just get your dopamine hits in different ways. And I like right. I've been, I've done a lot of work. Um, you know, in the lead up to the Firestar going out, you know, I wrote a lot of articles, I did a lot of blog posts, I've done a huge number of, you know, interviews and I've done a whole range of different things and those things all feel like that, you know, they all feel like, oh, right. that's done, oh, that's done, yes. oh, that's done. I'm, I'm crossing things off my to-do list all the time but mm. I have to tell you that there is nothing quite like the hit you get when you type the end oh, yeah. on a first draft. Sure. You know, it's, it's, it's delayed gratification but, oh, it's... it's massive and of course I've also had the huge event of the fire star going out and that is a huge thing so it's just different I mean it's different Um, and you've sort of got to but you I think the key to it is that you if you are working on long projects like that like a novel you have to be able to self-motivate you have to be able to it's not like you're going for the ring you know the, the the roundabout is moving a lot more slowly and so that gold ring takes a lot longer to get to um Mm. whereas you know when you're on the uh, sort of freelancing and you're sending articles off and you're doing stuff all the time you know you're Mm. whizzing past that gold ring like once every week or two weeks or so (laughs) so it's just you know but it's a big ring so Mm. once you get to it it's like oh yes the end the best words in the English language that's fantastic (laughs) Yeah. Must feel good. That's brilliant. It does. Thank you. It was a very oh, long way goodness. of saying I'm I'm better than fair to middling this week, Val. Hooray! <laughs> I'm also better than fair to middling, but I often am, as you know. Well, you are. You are. I mean, without your perk factor, if we were both just fair to middling every week, it'd be a very dull podcast. Uh, so I have been um, researching an upcoming writing project, uh, and that has been Ooh. keeping me quite occupied and getting me those dopamine hits, so I can see the dopamine hit coming. If you know what I mean, oh, you I can, can see feel those gold the- rings. Yes, exactly. Um, and I've released a range of lifestyle products. I know. I'm just like, <laughs> is there nothing this woman can't do? She's making suitcases now. It's like, what? Well, pencil yes. Cases. <laughs> That's right. There are pencil cases, backpacks, totes, um, luggage covers, blankets, uh, <laughs> wallets. You can be covered in Valerie Koo. <laughs> So some people will know that um, uh, I live a double life as an artist and designer and uh, an interesting thing that you can do also with your writing or any creative output is that much earlier in the year I started this thing called the 100 Day Project which is a little Mm. bit 
like hashtag write a book with Al, except it's hashtag the 100 day project. And what you're meant to do, although I'll just spoiler alert, I failed. Um, <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah, what you're okay. meant to do. Failure is fine. You started. Yeah. That's the important yeah, thing. Yeah, I started. That's right. It's like when you don't necessarily win at NaNoWriMo. You still yeah, that's right. win exactly in a sense. You yes, win because exactly. you did stuff. Yeah, You did something. You did more than if you did nothing. Exactly. So I probably only got up to day 67 or something like that. 67? That's yeah, ridiculous. but they they weren't consecutive. I only had 30 consecutive days. And what you meant to do is do something creative all of those days. And I decided to design something every day as my 100-day project. So I did manage to do 30 consecutive days, after which it became intermittent. And I limped along, really, to day 67, mm. after which I realised I'm just – it was no longer sparking joy, so I had mm. to get rid of this from my life. Mm. But my point is that – through the first 30 days, certainly, and probably a bit of the rest, it gave me enough to create a portfolio and it was the output output from that portfolio that has ended up on these lifestyle products. Um, and I'll we'll put the link in the show notes if you want to have a look, but on these lifestyle products, but also um, soon to be released in wallpaper and upholstery and rugs and carpets. <laughs> Well, see, if you hadn't started your 100 days, you wouldn't have days. That's right. That's right. So you could do the 100-day project if you want to write your book or NaNoWriMo coming up or the next time you do hashtag write a book with Al. It's great to do it with other people because you're accountable. That's right. Yes. Very good. Well done, Valerie. Thank you. Anyway, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing. And I have a cracker of a link. I love this so much. (laughs) Right. So. I always quiver with fear, <laughs> not anticipation when you say stuff like that, but all right. All right. So it was from Mental Floss and uh, it is entitled, Do Your Bowels Suddenly Spring to Life in Bookstores? You're Not Alone and the Japanese even have a term for it, Mariko Aoki. <laughs> so... <clears throat> Basically, <laughs> I'm waiting for you to explain further. <laughs> it's named after an actual woman called Mariko, Mariko Aoki, and she, back in the 80s, sent a letter to a, you know, like a literary magazine or something, explaining that she had this puzzling condition that whenever she entered a bookstore, her bowels suddenly <laughs> leapt to life. <laughs> anyway, the magazine printed the letter, and so many people also wrote in saying that they experienced the same thing. Every time they went to a bookstore, they needed to, you know, their bowels would spring to life. (laughs) So there's been a little bit of research uh, into it and it's been coined, like there's an entry in Wikipedia and it's been coined as the Mariko Aoki phenomenon. (laughs) And uh, it's interesting because I did a little bit of a straw poll with um, some friends and I was surprised at the number of people who also experience the Mariko Mariko Aoki phenomenon. I'm completely unsurprised by it because I also have friends who have this issue who I I will not go to bookshops with because every time we go in there, they start, you know, passing wind. I do, honestly. And it's... I don't know if it's the silence or if it's the, I don't know, but it's it's just like, you know what, you're just going to have to go in there by yourself. That is just too funny. I wonder what it is. Well, they're saying in here that they think it might be something in the, there's a couple of reasons that they give in this article that mm. you share, that it may be, um, you know, the, the, the scent of the ink. Mm. Mm. Being Maybe. a laxative agent. Maybe societal <laughs> in that, you know, we, oh, let's not even go any further with this. I just, <laughs> I do think it's a thing though. I'm not sure if any of our podcast oh, community members God. on Facebook will want to share their experiences in this. But, yes. you know, we're, look, we're, we're here for you if there's anything you'd like to talk about. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, we, if you do feel like sharing, do let us know because mm. I think it would be interesting mm. uh, to find out if it is a more widespread phenomenon. Yes. Mm. 
All right. I want to know if it's a thing. <laughs> Let's move on to there is the Spark Prize for Narrative Nonfiction, and that is now open. And I think this is great. So um, it's uh, you can check it out on the uh, – we'll put the link in the show notes, show notes, but basically it's being run by Hardy Grant. And you will, if you win the Spark Prize, get $2,000 prize money and a six-month men- mentorship with Hardy Grant's editorial team. So And also a week-long residency – at uh, McCraith House on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. Um, <clears throat> so this is awesome. I love creative nonfiction or I love narrative nonfiction. Now, Hardy Grant defines it as narrative nonfiction is nonfiction that tells a fact based compelling story. <clears throat> not to be confused with nonfiction on its own, narrative nonfiction includes, but is not limited to, memoir, hybrid memoir, biography, history, current affairs, popular science, journalism, creative nonfiction, cultural studies, and humour. Mm. So that's quite broad. I like <clears throat> that description because, you know, I think, you know, you see there's a prize for narrative nonfiction and a lot of people will be like, well, what even is that? So I'm glad that yes. they've given it a good, wide, broad definition. Yes, definitely. And if you are trying to think, if you, regular listeners may remember that we've interviewed quite a number of narrative nonfiction authors in the past. Um, Gabriella Koslovich, who wrote mm. Whiteley on Trial, Sonia Vomard, who wrote mm. The Media and the Massacre, Richard Feidler recently, who wrote The Golden Maze, um, mm. uh, Bo Donnelly, who wrote um, the 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 book about Belle Gibson and her cancer con, so yeah, you know, mm. I, I think it's a I, I love reading narrative nonfiction. Mm. So if mm. you have a narrative nonfiction idea, you need a one page synopsis, a chapter outline, and a five thousand word sample of your work in progress. So check it out. We'll put the link in the show notes. And there's also prizes for three shortlisted proposals. And I think um, something. Uh, that you know is in the is in our posts is it is a really good opportunity to practice writing that proposal if nothing else you know getting a proposal together for something like this is like yes. getting a proposal together to submit to a publisher so yes. you know if you're working on something along these lines this is a great opportunity to a put it in front of a publisher but also to practice what you're going to need to do to put your work in front of you know other publishers yeah fantastic hmm. All right, so let's move on to we want to give a big shout-out to Danuka McKenzie, who has been announced by HarperCollins Australia as the winner of the 2020 Banjo Prize. And we're particularly excited. Yes, woohoo! So she wins a publishing contract with HarperCollins and a $15,000 advance for her manuscript, Flood Debris. And we're particularly excited because Kate, um, not Kate, (laughs) Danuka... Where did I get Kate I from? No oh idea. no, her detective, her protagonist is Kate. Sorry, mm. um, uh, Danuka is alumna of the Australian Writers Centre, and it's so great to see people do so well. Yeah, we're very excited. Congratulations, Danuka. Congratulations. Very, very, very. Can't wait for the book to come out. All right, let's move on to our competition this week. We have three copies of Nala's World by Dean Nicholson. I love this so much. Okay. (laughs) She's excited. Uh, yes. Uh, where, as soon as I saw this book, I thought, we have to have this for a giveaway. Um, when 30-year-old Dean Nicholson set off from Scotland to cycle around the world, his aim was to learn as much as he could about our troubled planet. Then on a remote road in the mountains between Montenegro and Bosnia, he came across an abandoned kitten. Something about the piercing eyes and plaintive <laughs> meowing of the bedraggled little cat proved irresistible. He couldn't leave her to her fate, so he put her on his bike and then, with the help of local vets, nursed her back to health. On his travels with the cat he named Nala, they forged an unbreakable bond. The video of how they met has had over 20 million views, and their Instagram has grown to almost 750,000 followers and still counting. So this is... Such a great story. I've watched the video several times (laughs) because it's adorable. Um, And, yeah, he just rides around and travels around with with Nala and, you know, she stays with him in hostels and campsites and um, I have no doubt it's going to be an adorable story. 
So, so you'll if be you putting want... Rocky on the back of a bike and <laughs> cycling off any minute now, will you? No, but I have contemplated getting one of those, um, uh, uh, you know, those backpacks that you can put your cat in? Yeah. Because I do have a pet stroller, but my partner put it. I was going to bring up the pet (laughs) stroller because if regular listeners will remember the conversation about the pet stroller about 300 episodes ago. (laughs) By the way, this is our 350th episode. Like this should be like a, we should be having some kind of parade. And here we are talking about cats in backpacks. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a parade Um, in itself, I guess. Yes, yes. But the problem is my partner has put it in storage and refuses to get it out. Yeah. I'm kind yeah. of with him a little okay. bit. Anyway, so let's, let's I, not go I, any further. <laughs> I threatened to get one of those backpacks. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on. So um, you go to writercentercomau slash win to enter the competition to win one of three copies of Nala's World. Entries close on the 5th of October. That's writercentercomau slash win. Let's move on to Al. Are you ready for the word of the week? Could not be more ready, Val. <laughs> braced. I'm braced. Okay. Buildings, Roman. I do know what this is. Actually, maybe I've pronounced it wrong. It's Buildungs, Roman. Well, yeah. it's probably got an accent, really. I can get Bookboy in, if you like, to give us the correct pronunciation of this because if you have a student in year 11 or year 10, then mm-hmm. chances are you've come across this word. Okay. Mm. All right. Um. I had not. (laughs) (laughs) You're not writing essays. That's why. So it sounds like it could be a Roman building, but it's not. It comes from the German, meaning education novel. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, it is a novel whose theme is the early growth and development of its main character, Bildung's Mm. Roman. Coming of age novels. Coming of age novel. That's exactly right. Um, And a fancy word for it. I've I've read a couple of essays over the last couple of years that have this word in them. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our course, Writing Picture Books. If you'd love to create your own picture book, our popular five-week course in Writing Picture Books will show you how. Learn online and discover what you need to know about point of view, structure and pace, as well as language and rhythm, finding the right voice, working with illustrations, publishing options and much more. You'll also receive personalised feedback from your tutor on your writing. Let's hear from Victoria McKinley. Hi, I'm Victoria McKinley. I'm a freelance writer and a picture book writer. And my debut picture book called Ribbit Rabbit Robot is out with Scholastic Australia. I know I'm really, really lucky because my work is completely flexible and and I get to work around my daughter. So I'm still always there for pick up and drop off. And, you know, she inspires me. So, you know, she's kind of my muse. So I love spending time with her. I'm a total course junkie. Um, I've done loads of courses with the Australian Writer Centre. So the writing picture book course um, really made my dreams come true. It was the beginning of uh, my path to publication. Um, I had wanted to be a published author since I was three and a half years old and first started writing little stories. And, you know, it gave me all the skills and the confidence to write picture books and become published. The tutor had worked in the industry for years and she was, just had a wealth of knowledge. So Ribbit Rabbit Robot um, began when I was uh, bath time with my daughter. So she had been given a frog sponge for Christmas. So we were kind of playing with that in the bath, so that was the ribbit. And then we were just playing with um, language, so uh, other words that followed that kind of consonant combination. And we came up with rabbit and then, um, yeah, uh, robot as well, and kind of set myself a challenge to see, can you actually write a story just using those words? And that's kind of where it all began. So for anyone who's thinking about writing picture books, I'd highly recommend the writing picture book course. In fact, I do recommend it all the time to people that I meet that you know have an idea or are thinking about writing picture books because, I mean, it, it, it is an intro, so you do learn the basics, but I think even if you had quite a polished manuscript, you'd still get loads out of it. And um, as I said, even hearing from the teacher who has so much experience and has worked in the industry, so kind of finding out the intricacies of the publishing industry is so helpful. 
um, and you, it will help you polish up your manuscripts um, further. There's no way you could do that course and not learn something that would take away and make your manuscript stronger. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash picturebooks. All right, so our writer-in-residence this week, Al, is actually a publisher-in-residence. I think it's always Ooh. good to hear from publishers to give a broader Definitely. overview yes, of the publishing industry. So we are speaking to Laura Harris, who is Publishing Director of Penguin Random House Young Readers. So this also coincides with the fact that it is, you know, the imprint Puffin, the gorgeous imprint Puffin. Well, it's I do Puffin's- because it's my imprint. Well, there you, there you go. I'm well aware of it. I have a Puffin water bottle to celebrate the fact that Puffin is having its 80th year. I've got a water bottle. That's longevity. You're a pork chop. I can't believe you didn't know that. <laughs> okay, so happy birthday. Number one, happy birthday to Puffin. Number two, Thanks for reminding me, Al. And number three, (laughs) let's have a chat to Laura Harris. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Valerie. Thank you for having me. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, uh, but one of the things that's happening right now is the anniversary of Puffin. Now, that's like a beloved brand. Uh, but in case there are some people who have been living under a rock or something, um, just tell us a bit about what the Puffin imprint is and why it exists. Well, the Puffin imprint is celebrating 80 years and Puffin imprint is the children's imprint of Penguin Books. So Penguin started in the UK by Alan Lane was really established to have an accessible form of stories for everyone. It was a very affordable way of getting books to people and it's really how the paperback was born. But in 1940, um, with war war hitting the UK, Alan Lane thought that children perhaps didn't really know what was going on around them and he had the idea to create a couple of non-fiction books actually that explained um, for children what was going on in their world. It was a very frightening time, of course. And he called those first four non-fiction books puffin books. Hmm. Now, I always find it interesting and it took me a long time to work this up, but I think a lot of people associate a penguin and a puffin as being you know, big one, little one. But in fact, they're they're not the same species. So I'll leave people to go out and find out more about the two animals themselves, mammals. But um, a puffin is a type, it looks a little bit like a penguin, doesn't it? But both penguin and puffin are really established brands um, in the world, world of brands, actually. And for puffin and books, it's really, um, really, the puffin actually really indicates a level of quality and and hopefully trust because over 80 years puffin books have brought some magical stories and wonderful authors that are still being read today to children and it's really built a, a, a sort of a legacy of what children's books should be and what what all children's what many children's writers aspire to create for their audiences as well Mm. So that's really where, where Puffin started in nonfiction in the UK, but certainly in Australia, it really boomed in the 70s, I guess, when so much writing in our country, both for children and adults, really started to look at our own identity. And, you know, up till that point, Puffin being a UK brand, it was still very relevant for a lot of children in Australia because we were so bound to the UK in terms of Mm. where we came from and what we believed were our stories. But by the early 70s, you know, the population of Australia, not everyone was connected back to the UK for their stories. And there was a real need to show who we were and and what we were about. And fantastic writers started writing kids' books um, and illustrators course and adult books were, were, were doing the same thing and you really had what was a kind of real surge of talent um, in that period of time and that's when the Puffin Australia brand really took off with people like you know I think of Ruth Park particularly and, and um, her work and then we moved into 
Pamela Allen, Graham Bass, into the 80s with people like Paul Jennings and Morris Gleitzman and Alison Lester and all those people were writing and illustrating beautiful books for children, but they really did have this this slight, almost Australian light over the top of them. And, and children started to see themselves much more realistically in these in these stories. And that's really where Puffin took off on a, another level in Australia um, mm. with the talent that was actually here. And so you have been at uh, Penguin for uh, quite a while. You're the publishing oh, yeah. director at Penguin Random House Young Readers, but you've actually been at the company for 21 years. Now, What did you start off doing? Well, I'd like to say that I was some sort of weird teenage intern, but that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't that. Um, I actually, Penguin was only my third job. So I've been very fortunate in that I have been in children's books now for, oh dear, more than 30. Oh no, about 30 years I've been in children's Mm. books. But um, I started at Penguin... Uh, No, I actually started, for people that might know in New South Wales particularly, at the New South Wales School Magazine. Oh, of course. Yes, I was one of the editors there, but I actually came out of university and Anna Feenberg, a wonderful children's book writer Mm. and very dear friend, employed me just part-time to read some children's Australian children's books and just kind of do a bit of a cull for book reports that they were doing. And I was very fortunate. They ended up keeping me on and I got an editorial traineeship there and stayed there for five years working with some wonderful people, wonderful writers, fantastic authors, a lot of people who became friends and I went on to publish over the years. And then I went into trade publishing from there uh, to HarperCollins uh, and then to Penguin. So that's been it. Not very adventurous, but very fortunate because I didn't set out at all to be in children's publishing. I'm actually trained to be a teacher. So, um, yes, it was just luck and good fortune, I think, that had put me in the right place at the right time. And it was just a time with quite incredible people and my time at School Magazine particularly There was such a sort of buoyant love of Australian children's books, particularly, and writers, and we had such freedom to publish them. And new illustrators, you know, people like Kim Gamble were there and, and, oh, Stephen Axelson, Toby Riddle was one of the editors. Amazing people who are very well known in children's publishing now for writing and illustrating great books were, were part of that era. Yes. What do you think has changed the most in the world of children's publishing compared to, you know, 30 years ago and Mm. now? I think one of the things is that people didn't know enough about children's books. So if you started writing or illustrating for children 20, 25 years ago, you had a real passion and understanding of of kids' books because it was a little left of centre. I think what happened and has happened in the last 20 years is, dare I say, you know, writing and illustrating for kids, even working in kids' books, you know, became a a commercial viability, if that's the way to look at it, or sexy even, someone was said to me, which I found quite funny. You know, it used to be the idea that anything in children's books would be very prim and proper and, you know, very educational, I think. But I think the last 20 years showed that there is a quite robust amount, a range of stories. And we have had such huge success stories around the world, whether it's Harry Potter, which is always mentioned, or Twilight, or closer to home, the success of people like Andy Griffiths, um, or even, you know, Paul Jennings, as I mentioned, all those big sellers. Some people started to think they could make a living out of it. So one of the things I have seen shift is how many people want to write children's books. Mm. Um, The amount of manuscripts, the amount of courses available uh, has grown hugely. And I understand why, because it really is a very beautiful part of the publishing world. And unlike writing for adults, one of the things when you write for children is that your, your front and centre, not that you're not like this for writing for adults, but certainly with children, front and centre is your reader. Mm. And I think that motivation comes to, to different people for a different reason. And children's books generally are also written to be read more than once. You know, sometimes as adults we may have favourite books we'll read, you know, 
two or three times or yearly. Some people read a book yearly that they love, particularly love. Mm. But, but from the get-go, every children's book is there to be read again and again and again. That's why it's bought, it's owned, and it's reread at night with family or a child goes to it again and again. So there is something quite different that draws you to writing children's books. But I think financially and, fa you know, the fame and finances of children's books, I think, is what's changed significantly in the last 20 years. It's certainly much more known. I think it used to be, and I'm sure you'll know this yourself, Valerie, you only knew about the children's books when your kids were in that age group. You know, that's when you found out about mm. it and, and you moved on and then you let it go. Whereas now all sorts of people can comment on children's books or they know about phenomena that have occurred. Obviously, many, many adults enjoyed the Harry Potter books. Many, many adults, which I think is a bit of a way, love Twilight, still do. <laughs> um, certain, certain people enjoy that story. Mind you, I like the first one, but after that I, I couldn't see the point, but don't keep that in. Um, so I think I think that that's part of it. I think it's the... Uh, I guess to encapsulate what I'm trying to say, the profile has increased. You know, yeah. it's a it's a legitimate business too. I think that's what shifted. Certainly in publishing houses, um, I've seen. I've always had really supportive people around me who've always taken children's books very seriously. But I think the, what the profitability of kids' books and what they contribute to a company, I think, has really, really increased in profile. Mm -hmm. And the other thing you have with children's books, authors, not all of them, but certainly more than adult, is your average children's book writer, you know, can often put out a book a year, if not more. Mm -hmm. So you have a captured audience that repeats and repeats. So from a, a just a commercial viability that seems to have, um, you know, piqued a lot of people's interests about what that means. They've just just started to understand it, and the profiles increased. And I think also people are writing more for children because I think the pleasure in their own experience with reading books to their kids perhaps um, is really stayed with them, and mm. they find it very special and want to be part of it. I think I think a lot more people want to be part of children's books in many forms reading writing them illustrating and so you must get way more manuscripts than you did mm. 30 years ago so when yes. you're reading a fresh manuscript these days what are you looking for and what's the sort of thing that's going to make you go aha I think there's something here yeah it's it's a it's a great question and it's it's very difficult to define actually it there are many, many manuscripts that we get and look at that are extremely competently written, well written, mm. but there's got to be something more, like in any art form, that there has mm. to be something more, more. So there is something in the, the writing quality that you absorb very quickly from opening pages and there's an engagement, whether it's character or plot or suspense created very early that keeps you engaged. I think one of the things that is really important with children's books, more so than with adults who will be a little more um, patient, I guess, is the immediacy to engage you. And I think there was some study done by someone way smarter than I that found that, you know, adults will stay with the book for about 60 pages before they declare to themselves that they either enjoy it or they're going to not, or they don't enjoy it so much, but they'll give it 60 pages, mm. even if they're, um, you know, frustrated, but a child will give a book six pages and then they're done. <laughs> so um, I know you can work that as a percentage game, but still it's, um, it's an immediacy that there is something about character and warmth. It, it's a real skill to write for children. You know, it's not about just using, limited language or shorter words it is about engaging in the, the childlike qualities of characters very immediately so that kids identify I think often adults make the mistake of just trying remembering their own childhood and writing about that and while some of those experiences can absolutely translate um the the way the world was then and how it is now perhaps can be a little out of kilter Mm. So for me, it's not so much 
what the story is going to be about, but how it's being told that really grabs me. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's what, what I, I, I relate to straight away because sometimes I don't know where something's going and it really doesn't matter if I'm engaged. It, and it's not as if I'm sitting there thinking I've never seen a book about bears going shopping before because, you know, that's my that's my go-to storyline, bears that go shopping. Um, but, you know, some people will say, like they do in many art forms, there are three ideas and they're constantly reinterpreted. So when people bail me up somewhere and say, look, oh, I've got this great idea for a children's book. You know, I, I, I am patient and I do listen, but my advice is always the same. Go home and write it and we'll see where we go. Um, yes. And it, it is, it's all about the right, it's all about the execution and the writing for me always. Mm. What would you say are the top five trends you're seeing right now in children's publishing? I think a trend that well, there's a couple of things on the question of trend during this particular year, I guess, with so many challenges for so many people with yeah. uh, COVID-19, one of the things, I, and it's hard to, I'm not sure if to call it a trend, but certainly what we're seeing is a, um, a move towards um, very loved, sure, known authors or titles. It's quite interesting right now. It's almost like there's a a, a trusted brand. Mm. You know, people want that are they're risk adversive. I think a little bit with with books at the moment, um, in children's books. That's what we're seeing. I'm seeing anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I I think it's interesting too. I think there's there's a whole psycho psychology to that. I'm sure about something being a sure thing. And obviously that's not just coming from children because so many adults are the buyers of books for the children in their lives. Mm. So adults perhaps are getting information in different ways. Therefore, they're going to, you know, reliable sources. And we're really seeing uh, beloved authors uh, doing particularly, particularly well. So, yeah, I think that's been quite interesting. Obviously, Outside of that, one thing we've seen in Australia and around the world is definitely the move towards funny and series um, in junior fiction, particularly, uh, you, you know, if you love one book, you're going to love the second or third. And it's kind of related to what's occurred in the last 12 months. Those built up brands that have emerged earlier are the ones doing particularly well now, too. So, Certainly funny books with um, male protagonists have mm. been very much in the forefront um, in the last couple of years. And obviously for a lot of people, they think that a lot of people believe that's because it gets boys to read um, mm. if they're a boy protagonist. But girls read a lot of boy stories as well. Yeah. And I think we really we need to challenge if that's true of children too or if that's a leftover adult perception myself. Mm. But um you know, that, that's something to see. I think we are starting to see more diversity yeah. in, in our, our literature, which I think, again, follows, um, you know, a worldwide look at who we are and, and, and what we're about in all our areas of business and art and, and daily life. And I think that is a very important step as well. Um, we publish Melina Marchetta and, of course, her book, Looking for Other Brandy, it was one of those seminal teenage books about second generation Australian, Italian, Australian kids, teenagers. And she and I laugh all the time that, you know, it's not really a compliment that that book is still being used now. <laughs> it's been published it's 20 years ago. It's, it's from her life and my life and our backgrounds. And we sit here as grown women going, there's something a little bit wrong if, you know, there's a whole world of second and third generation young people in this country. And that's, that's addressing their issues now. And it's that mm. old. So um, I think a lot of publishing houses and a lot of people are looking at and, and reviewing the kinds of books being written for young people and making sure that they actually really represent what Australia is really about, not what we mm. thought it was. That 30 years ago, um, mm. as I said earlier, you know, we moved from a very, very much being part of the Commonwealth and, and looking back to the UK as our influences for who we were, we really shook it up 
in the 70s and 80s and maybe we need to shake it up a little bit more now about who we are in 2020. Mm. So in terms of trends, we've got, you know, sticking with what you know, we've mm. got um, funny <laughs> in and a boys. Um, yes. Yeah, male protagonists, diversity. What would be your mm-hmm. fifth one be? Uh, look, I, I think one of the things that I found with um, I've uh, teenagers in my life and mm. one of the things that they are really moving towards and we've seen it in quite a lot of British books actually and American ones too, um, in the teen world, we're really, I'm seeing a real kind of move towards the teen thriller. So, yes, there's a romance, but, you know, murder, mayhem and mystery, they're loving it and not in that sort of Sherlock Holmes way, in a very contemporary, quite ghoulish way. Um, the teenage girls in my life said to me the other day that they, you know, they really don't want to read another book about someone terminally ill. Oh, um, yeah. But they all, a huge John green fans and they all cite fault in our stars as one of their favorite books you know love 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 but you know it, it, there's a lot of books that have followed that pattern so um i think why a contemporary is still i think a, a, a real a real interest for young people but yeah with that slightly thriller element to it rather than a fantastical element you know we saw mm. that kind of fantasy and science fiction kind of move in in young adult or particularly fantasy um but I think there's been a, a real pull towards contemporary young adult fiction and yeah like I said that's mm. slightly um murder and mayhem well speaking of teens and YA mm. Apart from, you know, things like murder and mayhem, which are a bit <laughs> escapist, mm-hmm. um, what, uh, I mean, a lot of books tackle darker topics mm. these days compared mm. to, you know, when I was a kid. Mm. Um, so in terms of those dark topics, mm. what, a couple of things. Number one, what trends are you seeing in what topics are covered? But also, where's the line? Mm. Are there some rules? Mm. on where not to go beyond yeah it's in it's such an interesting area I think and I think in Australian young adult you know a lot of people around the world would go so far as to say that you know Australia almost created the the niche that is young adult Mm. because certainly in the 90s we had fantastic writing going on that was literally for 17 18 year olds because the content was mature Mm. um but you often had teenage protagonists and they kind of fell between two cracks and this young adult world was born Mm. and one of the things Australia did and and I've spoken to many colleagues in the US and UK and and they all acknowledge this that in terms of pushing the boundaries um Australian writers and and therefore publishers who took them on were really groundbreaking around the world so while we do have dark topics now. I must say that I think that it's not a new part of Australian young adult books as much. Mm. Um, but I think the taboo areas uh, range for people. I mean, one of the things that has been dealt with more so in young adult books because it's become a, a topic of discussion and obviously a lot of people care that young women particularly are aware as obviously of the levels and, and what's referred to as sexual assault mm. and um, certainly what is more current, which is certainly a dark topic, but we see it more now because our technology has made it so, is cyberbullying is probably one of the darkest topics that mm. is newer to us because, of course, 10 years ago we didn't have that available to us. And that leads, of course, to suicide mm-hmm. and and one of the areas I know some people vary in terms of their the ethical question of, of publishing is the idea of how you treat teenage suicide for teenagers in their in their young adult books mm-hmm. where there's a very fine line between being you know finger pointing mm-hmm. um or romanticizing the actual suicide itself yeah. so that's that's a real dilemma for people, I think, and we've we've certainly worked with some topic some books where 
there have been suicides and suicidal tendencies. And we've always thought that we really needed to take huge responsibility for having that those characters be really complex in what we showed and not having it be just one road or one solution. Mm. Um, and I think that's where as adults there is some responsibility not to shy away from something that's quite real for young people but perhaps to show alternatives when one of the biggest problems with teen suicide is that young people can't see alternatives in their real life. Mm. They really don't. And that's why so many of them think of it as an option. In books, like in any art, we can we can play with life a little bit. You know, we mm. can fictionalise a, a better version of how life is and, and perhaps guide young people a little bit more away from some of those horrible, horrible consequences that they find themselves in. Mm. It is such a responsibility, isn't it? And mm, I mean, I remember when huge. I used to work at teen magazines and it was, mm. I found it a big struggle to that line between, you know, dealing with it properly and not romanticising it and, and all of that. So in, oh, it's, we could, I could talk for hours about this topic, it's, but I won't. It's, it's a <laughs> um, tricky one. This It's a very tricky one. And mm. it's interesting that you say that about magazines too. And I remember from, you know, working years ago, things like Dolly magazine and, mm. and you know, the, the Dear Dolly questions and things. Mm -hmm. There was some where you wanted to have sort of humorous responses and other ones where you, you felt the need to pick up the phone and find out where these kids were. Yeah. You were that worried about their questions. And I guess that is one of the differences when we're working in fiction is that we, yeah, we can show life with, you know, various shades of grey in it. Mm. Um, all at once whereas often and that's the beauty you know to come full circle that's the beauty of reading isn't it mm -hmm. to sort of be able to shine different lights on different things that you might know but they're shown to you in a slightly different way you know and it, and it grows your perspective and it mm. it shows you what what sympathy and empathy are in, in relating to other characters who experiences are slightly different from yours but relatable so there's a book, children's books do a lot of, a lot of, a lot of um, mental stimulating and growth yes. in, in young brains. A lot of mm. that's going on. Mm. What was the last book, new book, that you you read and just went, oh, that's just got it? I think there's a book that's that magic. we're, that it's magic. There's a um well, there's a number of books that happen to me all the time, actually, I have to say. I'm very <laughs> fortunate because I get to work, I get to read first around some of our most beloved authors. So mm. they're not always, uh, you know, there's other people reading through the unsolicited manuscript pile. But two books spring to mind. I, Crystal Sutherland is a fantastic young adult writer whose book, Our Chemical Hearts, has just been made into a, a mm. film called Chemical Hearts. And available on a streaming device near you right this second. Um, but she, we signed her to two books and then bought, then I read her third very recently. She's now living around the world. She's a young Australian girl, woman, really. Um, she, she looks like a young girl, but she's actually a grown woman, but she's just got this delightful sort of youthfulness about her. But her books are always emotional teenage books that are beautifully written and so original each book is more and more original than the last like you just go I can recognize the writing talent but her storyline and her setup is completely different so her book her, her most recent book is called The House of Hollows and that won't be out till early next year but I read that and absolutely loved it I found it original and engaging and and mystifying when she's really been dealing with contemporary young adult romantic books really in her previous two but there was an element of mystery to this that took it to another level and it's all set in the UK it's slightly different again and I sent an email to the rest of the team here and just said just for fun just for your own pleasure I highly recommend this to you read it mm. um so that was The House of Hollows by Crystal Sutherland. And then in a much younger area, going back to one of my favourite writers and people actually, Melina Marchetta, mm -hmm. she's just begun a young, uh, a younger series of books for, you know, really seven, eight-year-olds. 
and they follow the days of the week and, and the first book's called What Zola Did on Monday. Mm-hmm. Then we have What Zola Did on Tuesday and so it goes. And it's set in a in a in a city suburban street and it's just Zola and her mum and her there's grandparents and aunts and her cousin that lives across the way and the street is a character and so is her school and it just follows everyday kind of stuff that kids that age get up to and for someone who's been writing young adult work like Melina has and adult novels obviously as well Mm. her ability to write for young kids and still have that level of charm and ease in which you just know these children you know the street I defy anyone not to see themselves in this neighborhood Mm -hmm. um, is just brilliant and we're really thrilled and so we are yes I think we're up to Tuesday or Wednesday so what Zola did on Monday is book one Mm. so those books have really sung to me. I mean, there are many, many more authors that I love, whose work I love, but I think they were they were a surprise, and they were two authors I really believe in, and I never, I never tire of seeing what they're going to do next. Mm. So, people value up at writers' festivals or supermarket mm-hmm. or wherever, yes. and they say to you, mm-hmm. "Hey, I've got this great idea for a children's book," and you say, "You know, you need to go write it." Let's say they do and, you know, you you obviously get a lot of um, uh, new writers. What's the What are the biggest mistakes you see when you're reading f- fresh manuscripts from emerging writers? I think, um, I think one of the things is people writing about a very special time for themselves mm. and that is their own childhood. And... It, it, it doesn't mean that the story doesn't have its own beauty or interest, but it's more an exercise either for that writer or sometimes for the family because it doesn't always relate to what other children might want to read right now. But it's often driven by love. I know that. Mm. But there has to be, as I said very early on today, the difference between writing for adults and children's children really is that when you're an adult to write for a child you have to have them at your end game in your head in your consciousness when you're an adult you're writing for you because you are an adult so you know it's a little bit of an easier you don't really have to define that because your everyday experiences are with you constantly remembering where kids are really about and where they are now particularly um, can be challenging and that's probably one of the the things that's most difficult to when we have to reject a manuscript is to you know the writing might be fine but it's not going to work that's the trickiest one to reject there's all sorts of just bad writing um don't <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it's when somebody you know is, is quite particular and 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 shows great writing ability but what they want to say is really for adults it's a reminiscence it's not necessarily um I think that that we see that quite a lot um the other thing that is I guess one of the trickiest things that we see a lot and I think is a mistake is people writing in areas where they believe there is nothing else available So I think one of the tips I always give to people too that are aspiring writers is go and read children's books that are already out there. Go and find out what's being published. Find out what's selling. Not so that you emulate it or walk away from your own style, but just so you know where you fit in. I mean, one of the the most difficult things in my job is seeing absolutely well-written, lovely work being rejected by us because it's publishable but we have four other books like Mm. that and we need to champion um, authors and titles and there's only so many we can do so there is no doubt originality does jump out and quality always 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 comes out but if you are being rejected and someone a publisher has said to you that your book is publishable and your writing is of good quality trust me it's it's often the truth we we just cannot always take on books of a certain level at the same time 
So keep going and keep writing. Just don't stick with one book is my my other thing. I think, mm. you know, too many famous authors have talked about how their one novel got rejected 43 times and they almost like didn't write anything else. They just kept with that one. And too many people think that just that one book should be published. But I think it's I think it's practice like a lot of things, you know, Painters paint all the time. They don't sit on one painting yes. and leave it to be sold. You know, they start another work. They they hone their talent, their interest. They challenge themselves. And, you know, if you if you really want to write for anyone, um, you must write. You know, you must, you must do it like a job. You know, it, there's a discipline associated with writing well as much as there is, um, you know, a talent there. So those two things really come together. Such great advice. Now, 80 years of Puffin, you've been in the industry for 30 years, so you've got a lot of experience to draw on. What's your, what do you see in the next 10 years? What do you see that's likely to be happening in the children's and young adult publishing industry over the next 10 years or so? Well, I'd like to see it as buoyant as ever. I mean, I think it's been fantastic and certainly in our experience here at, at Puffin, we've loved seeing the extraordinary success of Bluey. You know, it's for very young children, but the idea that you have family stories, uh, an Australian character, but you've got some subversiveness in there um, is a real joy. And, you know, the publishing program that we have with Bluey is, you know, it's wonderfully successful and, and it still shocks us every time we have to reprint how many of those books are selling. <laughs> so it's it's a real surprise. But I also, what I love about it and I think hope will mark the future is that, you know, the adults around children are thinking a little bit more about what the book what the book should be that they want their kid to read. And by that, I don't mean it's necessarily just a parent, it's a teacher, it could be a friend of the family. All sorts of adults are around children in different relationships. And I think it's really clear that most adults, you know, know that giving books to kids and encouraging reading is a good thing, even if they're not a reader. And I think that's becoming more and more predominant. You know, we know what's good for young people and we want to focus on giving them that. So I think there will be more and more kids' books written and the quality will be there. I think in terms of the kind of books being written, I think we're going to see older, more young adult funny books. I think we've had them before and they've disappeared, but I think one of the things and I guess it's because I'm around teenagers currently, um, because that's how old kids are. Um, No matter how dark the topic or how realistic it is, I can't believe how funny a lot of the young people are and looking some really dire things, you know, in the eye. There's still a humour or a subversiveness about them. And I think it's been a while since we've seen that in fiction properly portrayed and it would be great to see a little bit more of that. We've seen touches of it in things like um, uh, oh, a couple of US titles particularly uh, of it going on and post John Green too. But I think there will be a little bit, uh, I hope that's what we'll see over the next 10 years. But I think we'll also see um, the continuation of what is global phenomena where you know, we used to have English books, American books, Chinese or Spanish books or whatever, and each each territory had their own heroes. In this, this global world, I think there are universal truths, especially after this year, mm. that will apply. So I think there'll be, in, in writing anyway, I think borders will come down, strangely enough, considering they're all up, I think. Australian children already have access to some of the best books in the world out of Australia, but they certainly know what's going on in the rest of the world. And that will, I think that will grow as well. I think, yeah. Brilliant. Certainly a very dynamic and sexy industry. (laughs) Well, yes, we all take responsibility. I personally believe, you know, to quote, you know, Justin Timberlake, I think we've brought sexy back to him. Where you go? It's not just Justin. He's not the only one bringing it back. Shows how old I am that I'm quoting Justin Timberlake from 10 years ago. There you go. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today, Laura.
It's a pleasure, Valerie. It was lovely to chat with you. There we go. Laura Harris, always great to have publishers um, chatting to us on the podcast. So, Al, what are you doing in the coming week? Well, look, to be honest with you, I think I'm going to have a little bit of a break. I think it's time that yeah, Al read holidays. some books. Yeah. Because it's school holidays, you know, I've got a lot of, I'm doing a lot of, you know, driving my children left, right and centre. Mm. Um, and I just think that it's time to, you know, put some input back into the creative well as opposed to because I've drawn down pretty heavily on it this year. So right. I feel like it's, you know, and I just I really just want to put my, you know, mind into someone else's headspace for a while and, and do some reading. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do some reading. What Fantastic. about you? Fantastic. What are you going to do? I am actually going to continue researching this new writing project of mine. Oh, yes. I'm looking um, forward to hearing about that. Yes. So I'm still researching and, mm -hmm. uh, yes, I shall talk about it soon. Excellent. Look forward to hearing so more. So going to be busy. All right, fabulous. Where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Oh, and if you haven't yet joined our listener community on Facebook, make sure you do that. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free to join. We'd love to have you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.